0: It's like that mechanism where we're Mm -hmm. really going to find these long-term negative impacts and burnout because they're not able or they don't feel like they're able to or they're allowed to ask for help. Welcome to Attached podcast about the loved ones we're attached to, and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice, all of it, using science. I'm Dr. Patricia
1: Robertson out of the University of Tennessee.
2: I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa.
1: And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Yeehaw, go Klondike bars. Today, Jacob will bring <laughs> us
0: something mysterious in poppin' culture. Then in the academic deep dive, we're gonna discuss the academic article, by default, how mothers and different sex dual earner couples account for inequalities in pandemic parenting. I'm fully expecting this one to send me into a tailspin. And then in good or bad advice, <laughs> Probably much needed after this academic deep dive. We're going to discuss an article posted by Jake Turbin on Twitter about ways to decide if a new therapist is the one for you. If you have any advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcastgmail.com, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, because that's how we use those phrases, all at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message there. Also, we are on YouTube, as I'm sure you all know, so please smash that YouTube subscribe button and also the subscribe button on this podcast that you're listening to right now. Before we get to all the great content of this episode, what you guys doing? How's, how's it going? What's up?
2: Things are good in Iowa. Well, yeah, as good okay. as they can be, you know, you know, there's still okay. there's still a pandemic and. Our governor, our university president, they like to pretend like there's not one, but setting all of those massive death and destruction aside.
0: <laughs> oh,
2: those things. Those things. Um, things are good. Uh, my sister and her girlfriend just got engaged.
0: Oh, congratulations. Yes. That's so exciting. We're really
2: excited for them. The University of Iowa football team is like one of the best in the country because I know you're all paying attention to that, as is our field hockey team. Is that true, though? Is that true? Yeah, it's totally true.
0: What are they ranking right now? What are they ranking? Right like ranked number two. Oh, behind.
2: Uh, well, after this week, because Alabama lost, probably behind Georgia.
0: Oh, oh. Just kind of asking. It
2: was yeah.
0: a setup. Oh, wait,
2: wait. Oh, I see. <laughs> I, I forget that somebody. And she got for longest. it.
1: <laughs> oh, I,
2: I walked into that one so hard. Hard.
1: Yeah. I <laughs> and I just watched.
2: <laughs> but yeah, we're doing pretty good out here. Leaves, I mean, this is a really beautiful time in Iowa because the fall, there's tons of trees, the leaves are turning. Mm. Everything weather's... smells
0: like pumpkin spice. <laughs>
2: yes, and it's basically like a uh, autumn wonderland. I don't know if there's uh, a song about that, but there should be.
0: There's definitely not. But you can write it. Pumpkin spice, everything nice. I love it. Sounds amazing. Sounds very dreamlike.
2: It is. I mean, that's why, again, you should all move to Iowa. That's <laughs> what I'm just saying. Remember how this is like a running advertisement for Iowa? Yeah, yeah, Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully we'll get people that believe in public health before you move here, but...
0: <laughs> I think that's a nationwide issue, so I don't know if that's unique to Iowa. You're talking to people who live in both Texas and Tennessee. Yeah. So...
2: It's like the trifecta of... Really COVID. bad, bad yeah. like Public health decisions
1: Sarah Woods how's it going Pretty good it's not fall here uh, We're still in the 90s uh, I mean it's the calendar says it's fall But it is <laughs> still very Lovely out I have been lately Reading book five Of Harry Potter <gasps> with my daughter Aww. Yes, we last ended on book four a few years ago, and she pressed pause in the last yeah. chapter or two because she knew what was coming and it was just too much. And to be fair, she probably was too young. <laughs> and so we have since finished that, and she decided she wanted to try book five. So we're oh. taking it slow. But it's really fun to read these books um, like for somebody else. Right? I've already oh, read the story, yeah. so... Um, she asks lots of really good, interesting questions that make me wonder. Like, I was older, obviously, when these books came out; much older. Um, but uh, she helps me sort of see and think about it through like a different, different ideas and different things she's curious about, and it's really fun. Um, and I've gotten really good at voices of these kids. Oh my gosh! Now. Look at you. We have a get Bragging. Hidden no talent. talent. No, you sure can't.
0: <laughs> Hermione. That's <laughs> Hermione. Are you there? <laughs>
1: Sure, she surely is not. Uh, <laughs> it, no, no, it has been a lot of fun.
0: Amazing, uh, uh, amazing. Yeah, we need to jump back into the Harry Potter ones. We did a pause after book two, so uh, can I make a confession?
2: I have never read them. Oh my goodness! I've seen all the movies.
0: I, I'm sure no one has ever told you this, but the books are better than the movies.
2: No one has ever told me that. <laughs> I feel like I am kind of waiting around until my kids are old enough to sure. engage with them, yeah, and then we sure. can like experience the experience first time it. together. It's sure, gonna, it's gonna I mean because my wife has read them like three or four times each. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, it'll be fun. It'll be a, a good one. And they're doing this series now where they're like re-releasing all of them, but they're all illustrated. Have you seen yes, those? Yes, that's why oh. that's what
1: we did the first four as yeah. illustrated ones. Well, I, those are um, lovely. Though I hesitate to continue to uh, fund J.K. Rowling's retirement. No, um, agreed. Given sort of all of her problematic narratives over the last few years um, against transgender people. Um, yeah. Uh, Come on, J.K., we're called, this is five. your
2: official so. Attached Podcast call-out. Get yourself <laughs> some education.
0: <laughs> and this will be the, the thing that changes her. what? Attached? Sure said something
2: our our dms are open we will talk you through (laughs) this we'll listen to you but we'll also present with you the knowledge we have and we'll push you we'll challenge you until you'll come back out and
1: it's actually a really good invitation jacob i really hope she takes yeah because i am i know that she'll hear this
2: yeah so oh well I'm we're tagging just... her and all of our listeners need to tag her as well we're yeah. mobilizing to save jk rowling for future generations
1: oh well
0: okay hashtag also took a turn <laughs> hashtag mobilized to save jk rowling for future generations well it's like
2: you know you're right like Short you're a little tainted now and like if we can have her own up apologize Make some restitution, then maybe I'll read the books. That's a good trade off.
1: Yeah, yeah. She uh-huh. needs your twenty dollars. <laughs> she
0: does. Yeah, the lady but who's sure, richer than the queen. <laughs> what have you been up to lately? <laughs> thank you, thank you, uh, thank you so much. So I took a I took a wee little trip down to see my uh, parents and sister uh, down in Athens, Georgia, uh, home of the Georgia Bulldogs. Um, go dogs, sick them. <laughs> anyway, um, wow. in addition to seeing my family, so that aside, um, my favorite thing is coming to eat at various restaurants in Athens, Georgia. Uh, my currently my favorite restaurant is this Salvadorian restaurant called uh, Talalak. It is everything I've ever had there is so good. Have you guys ever had a pupusa before? Yes. Like I dream about these pupusas. It's basically like masa fried thing, and then you put uh, like various things in them.
1: Oh, uh, uh, mm-hmm.
0: um, it's much better than how I just described it. Yeah,
2: that makes me sound like a calzone.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does. It's uh, you know, I mean, Fine. yeah, sure, El Salvadorian calzone, sure, whatever. But it it's so good. Everything is so delicious there. And last night we had it, and. Um, we also had to go a pitcher of margaritas. So me and my sister split a pitcher of margaritas that were so good, uh, absolutely incredible, had a bunch of papooses. and also my sister came home with some extra things. We opened it, and I was like, this is ceviche. She was like, we didn't order it. I was, she was, I was like, no, I know we didn't. Like two giant things of ceviche. And lo and behold, she accidentally grabbed somebody else's order. Oh so no! She stole oh, stuff. Oh no! I know. We didn't order the ceviche. It was delicious. It was fantastic. No ceviche. wonder you love this
2: restaurant because you can steal from it.
0: No, we called them and said we would come by and pay for it. We said we accidentally picked up two two orders, so we're going. We will pay for it. We're not actually stealing it, but. I had never ordered their ceviche, and that was delicious too. Everything was so good. It's amazing. So I think about this restaurant when I am not there, and I was just so happy to eat at it today, yesterday. I love
1: it. So
0: um, you're seeing me on another uh, hungover episode of Attached. (laughs) Well it's like you know
2: you have to finish the picture of margaritas you can't it's not just yeah. like prosecco you can't it's like
0: prosecco it. it's like finish. vodka like once, once you again, open it
1: you can't once again it. Yeah. i counter <laughs> i think you can <laughs> everyone teach their own
0: it was it was amazing first up pop and culture we learn about relationships from our friends and family but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture amazing for the first segment we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships i'm told jacob has something mysterious for us this episode jacob
2: Mysterious is an excellent word again, Patricia. I mean, I just feel like we are on the same wavelength.
0: I am excellent at adjectives.
2: Yeah. So, I know our listeners have been waiting for the Bachelor in Paradise update this season.
0: Oh, God. Yay!
2: We're about to get it. <gasps> All right. So, of the... Well, there's actually like six spinoff shows in the Bachelor franchise... Which one, this is the mysterious question, which one do you think produces the most quote unquote successful couples? The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Uh Bachelor Uh in Paradise, Bachelor Winter Games, and there's a couple other ones that I can't remember right now. What what would you say, which one?
1: If it's not Bachelor in Paradise, this question is really not a good one. (laughs)
2: It is, it's Bachelor is, in Paradise, okay. <laughs> right? So over, this is like, I don't remember how many seasons of Bachelor in Paradise. They've had more couples who've stayed together what? long-term, gotten married, or had kids together. Oh,
0: wow. Um, so that was, the, just to check in, that was the mysterious part of it? Was yeah, that's the
2: mysterious part. was that multi- mysterious. You I mean, thought like, oh, oh yeah. well, of course. it's yeah. oh,
0: And oh, I had oh. always been thinking about it too. Like, which one? Yeah, that that's I figured. You know,
2: like, I think, we're gonna set one one of these parts aside is the fact that they actually spend time with people in Bachelor in Paradise as opposed to like the Bachelor, Bachelorette where you get like maybe like eight hours of one-on-one time with the person before you're supposed to propose to them. But setting that aside, what I've noticed about the couples in Bachelor in Paradise this season, I think is something that we need to remember when formulating relationships okay so the ones that actually have stayed together because you we you know i know the updates after the season ends we look to see which couples are still together because of course Um, it's it's interesting to know and this is across seasons the ones that stay together aren't necessarily the ones who just had smooth sailing all through the month-long formulating relationships right they're gonna have times when there's things that test their relationship that stress their relationship and what do these couples do differently? They figure yeah. out a way to um, work through the conflict, to build a foundation where like, if hard things come about, we can work together to figure them out to move forward. I think that there's this narrative frequently that the most important thing to do is to choose the right person. If you choose the right person, it's going to be conflict free. It's gonna be smooth sailing. And if you just have enough options, like you know, the bachelor or bachelorette, like there's 30 eligible suitors and I just gotta figure out which one, if I pick the right one, then our relationship's gonna be great. I think it is important that you choose wisely in relationships, but part of that choice isn't an absence of conflict. It's about how you work through conflict, how you communicate sure. through the tension, through the difficulties, through the stress. Now, granted, in Bachelor in Paradise, this is in hyperdrive, right? They're sitting on a beach in Mexico for a month, and the drama is mostly fabricated. But still, if you compare the differences in the shows, that process still plays out. Those who are able to navigate conflict in ways that bring them closer together, that build a foundation of trust, communication, connection, tend to stay together long term.
0: So we're talking healthy conflict resolution not like screaming name calling hitting emotional abuse type stuff you know like
2: sometimes I have couples come to me and they're like "Uh, we just don't want to have any more conflict in our relationship and I was like no you do want to have conflict you want to know how to navigate it in ways that can bring you closer together strengthen your relationship as opposed to tear it down I think that's the important process of learning how to navigate conflict in a way that even if it doesn't get quote unquote resolved, you're able to talk through, accept, uh, communicate through those differences. Basically what I'm saying is if you want to take uh, relationship advice from any of the Bachelor franchises, you should uh-huh. probably watch Bachelor in Paradise. That's going to be your best okay. bet for figuring out how to formulate you know, a good relationship.
0: Yeah. And I'm just going to sign on and say, I don't know necessarily if that is good advice, (laughs) but it is advice. It is advice. It's not,
2: I mean, actually there's this, oh, I can't remember the name of the account. It's really awesome. It's like all analytics of The Bachelor, we have to tag him for this episode. And I would love it if she would create a thing that shows like the level of successful couples compared between franchises. And then I would have the data to back that up, Patricia. Like, I know that in my head count just because of the couples that me and my wife follow on Instagram because we're real cool. Yeah. Um, but totally. Um, I bet she can do that for us. I might have to at her <laughs> right. and ask her to
0: do that for, for the love of the pod, of course. Right, for the love of the pod, of course. But that would then be descriptive statistics, right? It's not necessarily causal because we're not randomly assigned. We don't have that research method methods
2: well really
0: in wow. that it's just descriptive right I and mean, we were
2: well, yeah but correlation okay. equals causation isn't it that-
0: absolutely does not it absolutely does not okay okay this is not science people that's <laughs> what, what he's saying is not science so i just just like shouting it out there but yes it's so much fun to watch it's true and the, there are messages for sure <laughs> <That's absolutely nice. laughs> you're making me real anxious here uh jacob touting all of this Science, that's not really science, but it's okay. so I'm coming, I'm coming right back down. Deep breath. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled By Default: How Mothers in Different Sex Dual Earner Couples Account for Inequalities in Pandemic Parenting. Written by Drs Jessica Calarco, Emily Meanwell. Elizabeth Anderson and Amelia Knopf at Indiana University. Right next to Iowa, Jacob. Is it? <laughs> right next to you. Look at this Is Midwestern it? Oh, mind. it's not.
2: <laughs> it's not. Oh, well, like, I don't know, actually. We got, we got Iowa. Then we got Illinois. Illinois. Then we got Indiana. <laughs> like, come on now. Oh,
0: really? are 100% east. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indiana's east of Illinois. Um, I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it.
2: Yeah, somebody went to school in Indiana if I'm I'm correct, Patricia.
0: And I lived in Illinois. I immediately, I did correct myself. Like, I immediately figured it out. Recently published in the Journal of Socius, these authors explore how couples explain the disproportionate amount of child care moms have provided during the pandemic. As we've talked about before unattached COVID-19 has had a huge impact on family life. While fathers initially became more involved in parenting, research has shown that this actually decreased as COVID-19 continued. So that the family impact was especially felt by moms who became largely responsible for the additional childcare that parents of young kids needed while schools and daycares were closed, or even managing online schools when online schools were open. Research has since shown that this greater childcare burden has negatively impacted mothers' jobs, relationships, and mental health. On top of this, millions of moms in the U.S. reduced their work hours or left the workforce entirely in order to take care of their children. And few of these women have gone back to work, even though schools and daycare have largely reopened. And that is kind of a whole other body of research about the lifetime earnings of women and these families because of those, those changes in jobs. So the authors of this paper particularly explore how parents and different sex dual earners, so we're not talking about those people where the moms have uh, left the workforce, how those couples justify this unequal child care arrangement. Um, Sarah, what can you tell us about how these authors explored mom's reasonings for doing more than their fair share?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting study. I've been waiting for the results of this one actually because uh, the first author had shared on Twitter a few different times that they had recruited uh, participants from this longitudinal study that they already had ongoing of families with young kids to track some of how covid impacted these families so this is one of the papers um i think maybe the first that's come out of this this covid focus of this project uh this one is specific to qualitative interviews that they did Mm -hmm. so they interviewed 55 moms who were in as you just described patricia different sex couples where both partners were employed pre-pandemic Um, So some of that changed during the course of COVID, um, but pre-pandemic, they were dual earner. Oh, I understand. Okay. who completed at least one survey and interview in this longitudinal study. So either April, May, 2020, or January, February, 2021, um, because they've had a few waves of this project. About 85% of the sample was white, Uh, two-thirds were full-time employed pre-pandemic, which is they are they describe that their sample aligns with this monroe county indiana where they're sampling from sort of specifically but obviously as as we can sort of name later also affects some of maybe how we generalize how we understand how this could be happening in other areas of the country for other kinds of couples etc but all moms in the sample all 55 had at least one child that was under the age of two Mm -hmm. these are families with young kids half of them also had older kids like preschool to teens And they also, uh, although fewer dads participated in the project, they have surveys and interviews from 14 dads in these couples to also explore uh, whether some of what the dads explained about how parenting evolved during COVID aligns and or supports mom's explanations for this. So first what they did is they looked at mom survey questions about how much time each partner spent in childcare, how the pandemic disrupted normal work arrangements, child care arrangements, typical days during their pandemic these different survey questions to locate any changes in parenting arrangements that happened during COVID-19. They also sort of talk about COVID-19 pandemic in past tense, um, which oh. is, I guess, sort of interesting, which, I, I mean, publications happen at one point in time, so maybe that makes sense. It's raging where I am, so. Um, Same. And uh, they wanted to first determine whether at any point during COVID, essentially, moms perceived they were doing a disproportionate share of child care. Yeah. And so they analyzed these interviews, these qualitative interviews, and they did these moms about how parenting Um, Evolved during the pandemic And what they found was that Unequal parenting was really common So almost 80% of moms That they interviewed reported They did a disproportionate share of parenting For at least part of the pandemic and two-thirds of the sample maintained that unequal arrangement throughout COVID. So through it was something that they continued. Although one in four said that moms and dads shared childcare care equally, um, only 11% said that dads were primarily responsible. So when they looked at dads' responses of how these couples divided their parenting time, it aligned with moms. So it wasn't just that moms were saying, we're overburdened, or we are taking on most of this. Dads were saying the same thing so what they were looking for was how did they justify this like what we know from research broadly is not only did moms take on more of this childcare, but we also know that it had negative impacts right on their as you described patricia on their health on their mental health their well-being their relationships with their partners their career trajectory it it impacted every sort of conceivable area of mom's life. So how were they justifying this unequal parenting arrangement? So moms who were the primary parent described that their uneven share of pandemic parenting was justified, even though it had these negative effects, because it was first, practical. So what they were um, talking about was these structural conditions that made their staying home make the most sense. A lot of this was because dads were primary breadwinners Mm pre-pandemic, so they described their own paid work as less valuable than dads because they earned less pre-pandemic. We already know that there's um, broadly gender division in number of paid work hours and women's earnings in the workplace. Uh, So that was true for these moms. So it just was practical. It made sense that they took on the childcare role. They also talked about moms were more often laid off during the pandemic or more likely to work remote. That's not unique to this sample either. That's also true broadly. Um, But because they were doing more of that remote work or if they were part-time pre-pandemic, that also meant they got insurance through dad's employment. So that was another sort of structural reason why it was just Mm. practical. It made sense that moms take on more of the parenting. But what was really interesting is that when they were describing this sort of reasoning, it also meant that they felt less like they could ask dads for more help. So not only were they taking it more on, and there was these structural reasons for why that was the case, but there was different times during this trajectory of COVID where some of these dads were also working remote or off part-time or could have taken more time but didn't. um, And they were describing it as just practical for them to do so based on these um, pre-pandemic, I'm going to call them sort of disparities, gender-based disparities in employment, right? So the other big factor that they found, the other big theme that they found was that moms described these arrangements as natural. So this is where they describe cultural conditions, so these gendered norms and stereotypes about women's roles as caregivers. Mm. So this cultural value, for example, of being a stay-at-home mom, they sort of couched it like now I've been laid off, but now I have the opportunity. It's a good thing for my family. It's beneficial for all of us for me to be able to spend time with the kids. Even though we can see in this sample and in other bigger picture samples, it wasn't beneficial for moms. Right, they justified it as this is sort of natural. This is this is there's value to my being at home. It's good for my children. Um, again, this was sort of a, another reason or another area where they felt like they were therefore less entitled to sort of detach from their kids and ask for help from dads. Because when they were, for example, both doing remote work, this sample described dads would hole up in a bedroom or an office or some space and they would do their remote work from 8.30 to 5.30 and not, like, they were in there isolated. Even if the moms were doing remote work, meaning they were still paid employment, right. um, they did not feel like they could sort of separate from their kids as much, um, and uh, even if they were both sort of home full-time. Um, because of the impacts of these arranged uh, parenting arrangements on moms, it also sometimes meant... That they sent their kids back to in-person school even when their family might have otherwise preferred not to and even if dads were working full-time remote if mom went back to working outside the home and or the same mom's mental health suffered because of all of the weight of all this responsibility that's when the kids went back to school sometimes or they hired a nanny even if the father was home um, so there's a lot of descriptions woven through both of these themes of being practical and natural, feeling guilty or feeling selfish, um, which I think we hear, it's a theme we hear across studies about moms and um, unequal uh, gendered sort of traditional divisions of labor. When they looked at dads' interviews, uh, dads in these families justified this traditional division of care similarly. They described it as either sort of practical or natural. Um, there were some families where they had more non-traditional parenting arrangements meaning they shared child care equally or dad did more of that caregiving um, in these families moms and dads justified this as practical meaning mom was sort of an equal or the primary breadwinner and dads were at home more so it made sense that they shared care or dads did more of it but they rejected the idea that moms were the natural best caregiver. Mm. So even where they're similarly deciding what's most practical, what makes most sense structurally for our family, in these families they were saying that it's not true that women are supposed to be doing the caregiving, that moms are just sort of um, uh, culturally we believe that this is sort of normal and what we would prefer that's more traditional. Lastly, they had um, some families where were non-traditional to start. These are probably families where dad maybe stepped up a little bit more Um, to share caregiving early on, and then maybe that sort of shifted. They only described that um, as practical. Uh, They sort of focused really on sort of the changes in what they needed structurally. As I said earlier, I think there's some limitations in terms of um, this being a fairly white sample, these being couples from this one area in Indiana, but also I think um, aligns with a lot of other research we've seen on how traditional gender-based divisions of labor in the family play out This is true pre-pandemic. COVID has exacerbated that. Um, And part of what they explained is that this might explain why many women have not reentered the workforce at the level that they were at pre-pandemic. Um, because there have not been structural changes to help support moms, families who needs childcare support. But also over time here, they're describing that there's this sort of growing preference for this traditional parenting division. So if we're justifying the fact that it's unequal, it's unequal because it makes sense. It's just natural that this is how families do this. We want moms to stay home mm-hmm. um, is a sort of part of also why moms haven't re-entered the workforce and would that even change even if we had sort of big picture structural changes in terms of policy level, which is really I think an interesting question. Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway here from these interviews is that even when taking on more hurts these moms, the family, the parents justify it, right? That per these authors, this allows couples to continue relying on moms by default rather than through active discussion. This is just sort of assumptions that they're making about what makes most sense. And moms continued to not feel entitled to ask for additional support, which is a huge sacrifice. And very concerning, yeah. I know. it's, it's, It's very worrying. I know. They were really describing these more traditional arrangements. They were describing them as justified, desirable, this is what they want to do, even though they were negatively impacting mom's careers and their marriage and their, her well-being. Quality Um, of life. Right. So at what cost? And I think my question is, uh, why is this by default? Like why, why are couples not having active discussions with this? There's sort of like little that could be as important as this. Like what we know about when mom's mental health is not, good when partners' relationships are not solid, when these kinds of things are impacted, kids' kids' well-being suffers too. So even if we're sort of justifying this right now, the long-term trajectories make me anxious. I really am sort of wondering about how couples can more actively talk about these unequal parenting roles and be honest about whether it's impacting mom's mental health because this sacrifice theme that I feel keeps coming up,
0: Yeah, not just in this and, study,
1: but across the board is...
0: Yeah, certainly the mental health thing is, is concerning. There is uh, enormous bodies of literature saying that mom's mental health in particularly is, is directly linked to child wellbeing outcomes. I wonder what this will look like in a couple of years um, because you know, they do talk about it as if the pandemic was in the past, but we're still very much feeling the mm. pandemic. Schools are still closed down for quarantining. Even Mm -hmm. if their kids are in schools, I don't know if we've seen the full effect of the pandemic is what I'm saying on these. I think we're in the middle of it still. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I also think, you know, the the lack of conversations around it in the beginning, for me, anecdotally makes sense because we are all rushed so quickly into this. We had to make these kind of um, very, very quick decisions because for us, it was one day, over the weekend, and then everything was shut down, right? So these decisions had to be made very quickly, but those decisions were a year and a half ago, right? So it seems like those very knee-jerk, quick decisions stayed, didn't really have much of a conversation.
1: Or evolved towards becoming more, more traditional. Gendered. You're right, you're yeah. right, yeah.
2: That has been my private practice for the last three months. With I was wondering ma- The about majority that. of couples that I'm seeing is having these conversations around how they have – organize their labor and Mm -hmm. also how gender parenting those societal and cultural and structural issues are Mm -hmm. infused into that and it's tough you know i don't have a huge practice but this article resonates with a lot of the women um in you know different sex couples that i work with and it's hard it's it's a struggle
1: Mm -hmm. yeah because it's um You're having to challenge or rather sort of you're up against structural challenges, right? That we have little control over uh, gender divisions and how we pay women and how we get health insurance in this country. And uh, I mean, those sorts of things you're not fighting at a couple level when they're describing them as practical. It makes total sense to me. Those are real life considerations. You need health insurance for your family. And if you get it through dad, because dad is a primary breadwinner or Uh, working full-time or whatever that looks like, that's a real-life consideration. And it makes sense, yeah. Yep. That natural piece, that cultural piece, is where I think there's a real battle here, potentially at the couple level.
2: I've seen these dudes and these couples using that almost sometimes as a narrative to also, I'm stressed out, but because I'm working and my job's important, in some ways I can opt out of this and I can expect you to take more on because mm-hmm. you know it's better for our family. And I think that's a narrative that I'm trying to push on too because it mm-hmm. becomes just piling on. You know, They're thinking, oh, I'm doing something good for my family and able to opt out or neglect this other piece of that narrative which is really stressing
0: their partner. Right, there are many things that are worrying about uh, these themes. But one thing that is particularly concerning is these women not feeling like they can ask for help. Like cultural, structural things are in place, these cultural narratives are in place, but at the granular level, it's meaning that these women don't feel like they could just ask for help. Like they can't Mm -hmm. ask for, hey, can you um, help me with this so I can go take a shower or help me with this so I can go do whatever. which of course is not an ideal situation. You know, your partner would be able to like see that, but that to me is like that mechanism where we're Mm -hmm. really going to find these long-term negative impacts and burnout because they're not able, or they don't feel like they're able to, or they're allowed to ask for help. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, and I think you hit on the structural change that needs to happen right there, right? It's women are expected to ask for help when in fact that should be on the men of these different sex couples to be attuned, to be informed, to be responsive and to push against, to use some of that privilege that they get structurally to push against Mm -hmm. this narrative and to shift it. But unfortunately, often Mm. the easier route is just to replicate it.
0: Yeah, of course. It's easier. You don't have to do as much work. It's easy to go with the flow, 100%. Which might be what these women are experiencing too. It's in the moment, perhaps, easier to take on this burden. It's easier to do this than push against these things structurally when we know women have less power in these structures anyway. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: In the moment, it feels easier. But long term, it's certainly... It's not.
1: Well, and I think the concern of these authors is even if you make, as I said, structural changes, if you implement policy to get these families more support, at this point, are they going to take you up on it? Because are they justifying this sort of short-term trade-off of the benefits of being able to be home with my kids, spend more time with my kids? Like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. There's this real cultural value on moms being really engaged caregivers. Are they going to sort of um, utilize any of those structural changes by the time they finally come around, uh, because they will have already sort of justified this more traditional gender division. But I think you're really right, Patricia, that um, the negative outcomes are already happening Mm -hmm. on women's mental health. And so connecting those two more intentionally between um, taking on too much of the family labor and, you know, how you're suffering... Um is is probably important. Yeah, and, and you
0: bring up kind of another hidden uh cultural message when talking about, you know, even if we get policies implemented, are people gonna take us up on it? Because as a culture in the US, we very much have this individualistic pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. And it makes it a lot harder for people to to utilize those public policies that are so so helpful and are there. To just make society better um, because of those additional cultural messages that we see. So affecting change, these socio-emotional uh, impacts of the COVID um, are going to be pushing up against substantial cultural um, mm-hmm. structures to really pull us out of the yeah. negative impacts of COVID. So band together, you guys. We got this. Let's do this.
1: Mm-hmm. Important research, I think, um, yeah. contrib- contributing to a conversation that needs to be had in a much, much bigger picture. Woohoo! Boo!
0: Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, families, and friends, we see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, and we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social medias, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just actually isn't good advice and isn't good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you've seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at AttachedPodcast at gmail.com or get at us on the Twitter, the Insta, the Facebook at AttachedPodcast or go to AttachedPodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, while you're there in the World Wide Web space, please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast or YouTube channel. We would greatly appreciate it. As I alluded to at the beginning of this episode, our good or bad advice kind of miraculously uh, streams uh, nicely from the academic deep dive segment. So on Twitter um, a a while back, uh, Jack Turbin, uh, a medical doctor, posted a really great article by Self Magazine authored by uh, Dr. Jesse Gold titled, 12 questions to ask your new therapist before you decide if they are the one. Um, there are 12 of these. We are not going to go through all 12, uh, but we're going to go through a couple. Are you guys ready?
2: Yeah, but I feel like you've tainted it already for me because like, I've got to say all of this is good advice because you said it was an excellent article. So
0: <laughs>
2: hopefully I don't disagree, Patricia. I feel like my anxiety is already up.
0: <laughs> I'm so sorry that... I influenced your anxiety. I did not mean to do that.
2: Um, (laughs) Well, uh, it's really Sarah and her face because I know like (laughs) I say something and then Sarah is going to come in and be like, wham, I feel like I'm just triangled all the time.
0: Oh, God, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. Poor Jacob. You want to talk about like coping with anxiety? Is that what you want to talk about this episode?
2: No, I have my own therapist for that.
1: (laughs)
0: So, number one. That's why there are three of us anyway, Jacob. At one time, three is the strongest, um, you know, shape. Or something. Anyway, number one. Is there a reason? These are questions to ask your therapist. We may have lost the thread of this with that, but these are questions to <laughs> ask your therapist. Uh, number one, is there a reason you're a psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, family therapist, etc., rather than some other title? There are a lot of different types of providers in the mental health space, and this can make things pretty confusing uh, when you are looking for someone to see. To start, the term therapist is ambiguous and could refer to any number of people. Um, so asking them why they are that. And then she goes on to talk about how, you know, that rationale could map onto exactly what you're interested. So what are your thoughts? Is that a good question for someone to ask their therapist? And have you ever been asked that? I guess.
2: That's an excellent question. I think that, um, asking your therapist to, you know, explain about who they are, how they practice the training they received is really important. The second piece you asked there, Patricia, is have I ever been asked that? Yeah, I think this comes to sometimes what I think is the difficulty of these articles around finding the perfect therapist or the one therapist is often when people go to therapy, like they're in crisis. And so to have the wherewithal to say, "Okay, I need to ask you some questions when really you're struggling, you're hurt, sometimes the framework isn't there to ask these questions. So I I think sometimes, too, it's okay to do these on the front end. Most therapists are going to have a website where they're going to talk a little bit about Mm. themselves. You can see their training and those types of things because sometimes in the moment, it's going to be really hard to ask that question of the therapist because you're feeling overwhelmed. Or, you know, if you're going to couples therapy, oftentimes there's a lot of tension, a lot of friction there, and it's going to be hard to say, oh, well... Before we jump into why I don't like this person next to me, I wanna ask you some questions. So really good question, finding yeah. space for it and time for it sometimes can be difficult.
0: Jacob, I'm just gonna let you know, I thought that was an excellent answer. <sighs>
2: um, <sighs> my anxiety is lower. <laughs> <laughs> good,
0: good, good, good.
2: Thank good. you. And now um, regardless oh, of what uh, Sarah says, it has to like, I can't be invalidated, right?
0: No, no, 100% or 98%. One thing I wanted to really tease out from there before we uh, pitch it over to Sarah, that's not the metaphor you would use. Um, Sometimes I think that going to therapy can feel a lot more like going to the ER than rather your annual doctor's visit. Right. And so I think sometimes, which is important. We need the ER for sure, but that annual doctor's visit, if we can think about therapy sometimes like that too, really is, can be preventative for those emergency ER um, visits. And that's all I was going to say. Woods,
1: yeah, I would agree. I think it's a, a good question. I think I agree with Jacob that it is not clear to the average person. And honestly, I think I have had a um, a second like side gig <laughs> during the pandemic of trying mm. to help friends, family, uh, friends of friends, acquaintances find therapists that are available... That- take insurance, that have mm. openings that are in their area, licensed in their state. I mean, it has been it's hard, so impossible in the last year and a half. It is incredibly challenging. So yes, you should ask these questions. No, you should not know the answer to that question before reading up about that person. I would agree with Jacob. I think the title is often less important than what they are um, trained and capable of doing mm-hmm. so psychiatrists are uh, the only one in that group you listed Patricia that can prescribe medication mm-hmm. um, uh, although the list said etc so there might also be like psychiatric
0: Nurses, uh, nurse practitioners yeah. or
1: etc but among the, the many different uh, Mental health providers, there are core differences between them. And for the general public to know that, it's just impossible. Um, and although marriage and family therapists train, uh, are absolutely required to train in couples therapy, where the rest may not be, it has no bearing on whether or not you might have an LCSW or a licensed counselor in your area who is a phenomenal couples therapist. Yeah. They've done their own couples training. So I think it matters most. Um, I think it's a great advice to ask this question. It also matters most what they, that individual is capable of doing and if they're able to sort of work with whatever you're coming in with, but even more important than that, and I apologize if I'm jumping the gun and this is like an additional question here down the line, but even more important is whether or not you fit with that therapist. Mm. And so I think like Jacob's talking about um, thinking about that first appointment, at least that first appointment, if not the first few um, as you're also interviewing the therapist to make sure they're a fit, because if they're not a fit, um, you need to find a different therapist because that's not always a perfect fit. And honestly, if they're a good therapist, they should be talking with you about that up front. I really do think um, they should be talking about looking for fit and making sure it's a fit for you.
0: Which can also be challenging because sometimes your insurance only allows you so many sessions a year. So Mm -hmm. they're as much... Information is you can gather beforehand, if, especially if you're yep. limited in terms of insurance. that That's a, yep. that's a good idea. Therapist
1: websites are a ho- wholly mixed bag. I mean, if yeah. there was one thing I had to recommend to the mental health field broadly, one of them would definitely be, please clean up your website. If I, a licensed mental health provider who has been doing this for years, cannot decipher on your website what the hell it is you do or whether or not you're seeing patients, I, nobody can figure it out. I mean, it's a nightmare. <laughs> Um. just clean up your websites yeah. because people are desperate and they find you and they don't know what you are doing.
0: Yeah. Yep. So in general, good advice and also something that you could do ahead of time if the therapist website is good. All right, moving to the next one. Um, we're going to skip ahead to three. If you have so many patients, how do I know you'll be focused on and care about me individually? is this a good question? And have you been asked it before?
2: So I don't have a very good practice and I'm kind of transparent about that. So I don't get asked that, but I think it is an excellent question, right? Therapists can get burnt out too. Therapists uh, need structures.
1: Especially now.
2: Yeah. In place to help them cope and deal. And I think it's okay. You know, you're not asking your therapist, like, so tell me about your therapist, but, you know of saying like hey i know you've got a lot going on do you have the capacity to help me because i think what that does is also puts responsibility on the therapist to not just be a passive agent i think too though like we're talking again like this role of the person looking for therapy being the one that's kind of gatekeeping the therapeutic relationship it also yeah. needs to come the other way right if the therapist should be aware that if they can't take on any more clients, that they shouldn't, Uh right? That they should say, hey, I don't have any more space, whether that's time or whether that's just emotional capacity, but here are some recommendations of people that you can go to who I know are accepting new patients, right? I think that's on the therapist. I also think too, like Sarah said for question one, therapists should be transparent about this conversation. If therapy is going to be effective, you need to think this is a good fit and what do you need for me to know that this is going to be a good fit right you know i kind of feel like this is written these are the 12 questions you're going to take in but this is a bi-directional thing the therapist if they are trained Mm -hmm. well should be asking you about this should be bringing Mm -hmm. up in each first session i have with couples clients individuals whoever i'm going to say like for this to be effective we need to make sure this is a good fit and what do you need to know for me to know this is a good fit Are there any questions you wanna ask? Is there anything? So creating that space for clients to ask these questions is also indicative of a good fit for therapy, I think anyway. So good advice. Also, it's not just you have all of this responsibility as a person seeking therapy. The The therapist should also be taking on this responsibility.
1: I think if you are feeling the need to ask this question, it is good advice to ask this question. Yeah. Um, meaning the therapist's job is to create enough safety in that space in therapy that you trust them and that you feel that they are fully present to you every time you meet with them. So it should theoretically never be a question about whether or not your therapist is focused on you and whether or not they care about you because you should in building that trusting relationship and feeling like they are safe to be working with and like it's a fit, you should be part of that is that you should feel that they care about you and that they um, have your best interest at heart and that they're really, really present. If you are thinking to yourself, I'm not really sure that you're focused on me enough or you sort of feel like you're distracted or do you have too much on your plate? If you're feeling that, I think it's good advice to ask that out loud with your therapist if you feel comfortable and safe enough to do that, of course, because if I had a client that was feeling like that, I would absolutely want to know that because there's something that needs to be adjusted there because otherwise you're wasting your time. If this is something that you're worried about, that's a question that needs to be asked. I've not been asked this question. I have been asked very rarely some version of, uh, do you sort of only care about me because you're getting paid to do this? (laughs) Um, Which I think tends to um, say a little bit about maybe the the person's anxiety about um, being in therapy and about maybe this sort of same question about, will will you actually care about me? Sort of testing that. Um, And... uh, That's also a relevant question if that comes up for somebody. Yeah, absolutely.
0: This author kind of, and echoing what you're saying, also kind of talks about her training and how they're trained to multitask and trained to do that type of um, work, which um, I thought was an interesting um, response that it's part of Mm -hmm. your training that I had not heard before and and I don't the think I got that a, training a psychiatrist.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that would that would make sense. So I think yeah, um, physicians are uh, trained to skilled. multitask. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of details in the healthcare system that require that, but their job should still to be able to be fully present in the right. therapy room. Right, which I would guess she also is saying she's able to do. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. So a good question we're thinking. Uh, Especially if you're feeling that. I think it's a good question. The next one um, I liked because I think it's a lot of anxiety that people have initially. So skipping ahead to number nine, if I spot you in line at the grocery store, what (laughs) should I do? Um, And she goes on to talk about how um, she, you know, won't acknowledge you unless you acknowledge her first and she'll, you know... to trust that you you'll you have to make the first um, move. I'm curious if you guys have ever been asked this, and what your thoughts are about if this is a good question or not.
2: So I think it's a good question. Also, I think it's something that the therapist can take onus and responsibility for. When I was a therapist in training, I didn't do this once, and then I ran into a teenager who I was working with the whole family. And that teenager never came back because they saw me. They didn't know what to do. I'm sure I reacted poorly. And I was like, oh. And so since that time, I have conversations. I like the city I practice in isn't like millions and millions of people in this city. So the odds are we're going to see each other at some point. And so I'm pretty explicit about, hey, let me tell you a little bit about confidentiality. I walk them through all of the more like reporting issues that are present there too. But then I say, hey, what we talk about in here is confidential. And our relationship that we have is confidential. I'm not going to out you as one of my clients. So in other words, if we're walking around the farmer's market and you see me and I see you, I'm not going to say anything to you. If you want to come up to me, if you want to say hi to me, if you want to have a conversation with me, I'm open to that right? I'm not going to go into details there. And if you bring up like, oh, hey, I got to follow up on this. That's not the space for that. Um, Yeah. And I'm probably not going to introduce you to the people I'm with. I'm just going to say, hey, how's it going? Nice to see you. And then we're going to move forward. Right. And if you have something you want to circle back on or if you would rather, you know, if you would rather just have me ignore you, let's be open with that, too. But Again, I think that's important to bring up if your therapist doesn't, because depending on where you live, in all likelihood, it might happen. And hopefully the therapist, again, is taking responsibility to communicate that. Good advice, good question. Yeah. Woods?
1: Also agree, good advice, good question. Also agree that the therapist should be naming this in first session. Uh, as part of confidentiality. This happens all the time. You don't need to be in small town Iowa to have this happen. I work in uh, downtown Dallas and live nowhere near there and have definitely still encountered patients in places in between. Um, uh, So I think it is helpful. I've also um, sort of behind the scenes of how therapists operate. I've also prepped my family, right? That sometimes people, especially um, I think children uh, if they're more comfortable and they see you, and probably, I've definitely had families be like, "Oh my gosh, look, it's it's Ted's therapist," um, and they get like really excited to see you. So I've just prepped my family too that like if we are out and about and somebody comes up to say hi and you don't know them, just sort of quietly walk away, go to a different part of the store. Don't ask me questions afterwards because confidentiality. Just assume. That you can't know about any of it and um we're not going to talk about it so uh i also prep my family for that confidentiality that's a, that's a good,
0: yeah yeah that's a good i never even thought about that but of course you'd have to prep your family so a completely so normal question yeah, um, Absolutely. very appropriate to bring up to the the therapist but hopefully they'll bring it up um first in the confidentiality agreement that you sign. All right, moving to number 11, what are the benefits and drawbacks of teletherapy appointments with you? This author kind of talks about some pros and cons, but from your experience, especially during these COVID-19, is this a good question and what has been your experience?
2: So I think this is an excellent question. Um, And I'll be transparent, when COVID hit, I had had zero telehealth training about navigating those mechanisms. Um, I think in the training program I run, and now in every training program out there, it is going to be like required for that, mm-hmm. right? We I had, I had educated myself over the few months of COVID to try to figure out best practices, reorganize the clinic I run and my own practice to make that useful. In some ways, I've found that teletherapy is unique and different, and Um, there are some considerations to do that. And in other ways, there isn't, right? There's still part of the process of therapy that um, I think can be translated pretty well via teletherapy. It actually surprised me a little bit and I think it's a part Uh of my practice that I'm going to keep because of some of the barriers it removes, some of the ability, the consistency that you can get through teletherapy that's not always the case when you have to come in person all the time. Um, so I think it is important to ask about teletherapy services if that's what you're going to have. I think that in the future, all therapy will look some sort of hybrid just because of that flexibility that potentially could be there structurally. But I do think that um, it's important to have a conversation with your therapist if that is an option of what that's going to look like, how it's going to be helpful, what are some of the good things and the drawbacks of it. and again now the therapist you go to should have this spelled out in a document they should go over it with you of saying hey if we get cut off this is the way we're going to you know like if the zoom doesn't work if the internet's not working this is how we're going to pull this together Um, these are some of the pitfalls of ensuring confidentiality in this space right because if you're at home and you're talking to a therapist it may be that other people in your home can hear that right so there's going to be conversations around this that your therapist should be having. And if they're not, I think it's important for you to bring that up and to be transparent about it. But also, again, that shouldn't be just the person seeking therapy's responsibility. So good question. Also, therapists, you need to be taking responsibility for this. Yeah.
0: Woods?
1: Yeah, good advice. I agree. I think it's a great question. I also think that therapists should be addressing this up front. Um, I think there are so many benefits that like Jacob's describing, I would never ever have wanted to do any teletherapy at all. And now that I've seen the ways it improves access to mental health care, to go back to not offering it feels unethical uh, because it just improves access to care dramatically. It also improves access to other family members. Um, And patients have been so open and so vulnerable in ways that I was not prepared for and expecting at the beginning. And part of that, I think, was COVID stress. But I think it was mostly that they are in their own safe place. They're in their own home. They feel comfortable there. There's None of that preparation of getting dressed and driving to the clinic and sort of getting all set up to right check in and be in a foreign space that's not yours and the office wait and all of that stuff. You just turn on your computer or pick up the phone and you're just able to have a conversation where you are. So I think one of the important considerations that I talk with patients about upfront every single time that I talk with them is, are you currently in a space that is confidential and private and safe enough to be able to have this conversation today? And occasionally we have somebody that says, actually, can you call me back in five minutes? And they get to some place that's more confidential, yeah. and more private, or that they know for sure is safe because it can't be overheard. Um, and that's an important, um, uh, I don't know if it's a drawback, but important consideration. Yeah. So I think this is a great question to ask. Very smart.
2: And Sarah, I was going to ask you too. I don't know if you've had this experience. I don't, like in your work, you're probably not doing a lot of couples therapy because it's, but I actually found with highly conflictual couples, I make them get on two separate devices and be in two separate spaces, even though I'm seeing them together. Because it just like, they can forget I am there. And it's harder to be more present and jump in if they are in the same space and really like, yeah. Oh, that's funny. um, I've I've had to talk navigate that that too because it really sets up a different Mm. structure that replicates, I think, more so of having me in a therapy room where I have a little bit more control over that structure. Oh,
1: that's interesting. I've not tried that. I usually have had the reverse where I... Um, it sounds like, or sort of, the patient makes it sound like uh, some version of they're the only one on the phone. And then I sort of you're like, I or why? Do, why aren't you telling her about this? I'll like, say, uh, just quick question: Is your wife right there? Uh, Yeah, she is. Do you want to just put this on speakerphone? Yeah, you're already on speakerphone. Yeah, okay. Well, can I introduce myself? Fantastic. And I'll bring that uh, (laughs) adult child or spouse or sibling or whoever it is that they're... My favorite is when they're conversing in one language and whispering, obviously, to a family member in a different language. And I'm like, I know that somebody's sitting right there. Would they like to be part of this conversation? I'm pretty sure they already are. Okay, fantastic. So um, (laughs) I've had more of the opposite experience where I can figure out pretty quickly, someone else is listening let's invite them in yeah, and it's awesome. It's fantastic. Cause they're already part of it. Right. Yeah. So to ignore them, like it just makes it easier. It's two people who didn't have to figure out how to get to the clinic that day.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or that second person is absolutely critical to care. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I'm able to talk to them because immediately.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. They're working remote, but they're more than willing to pause working remote to get on that phone call. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you tell them about that birthday cake you had last weekend?
0: Hmm? Okay, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic, That's why uh, harnessing
1: families in uh,
0: healthcare is
1: critical. <laughs> and to be clear, in typical psychotherapy, birthday cake not an issue. I work in a family medicine clinic, where yeah. if we're working on like diabetes goals or something, the family members often want to out them for you know less than healthful <laughs> choices, um, which they absolutely uh, love so it. So typically, birthday cake not a topic. <laughs>
0: It is for you. I love it. Well, as always, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on those social media about relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether you should follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk.